The Guardian. Hello, this is Michael Morpurgo for the Guardian Children's Books podcast. Hello, hope you're all right. We're going to be talking about writing about war, and I've made this collection called Only Remembered, which we're going to be talking about, amongst other things, and I thought I'd read a piece from it. What it is, is I've asked rather extraordinary people, interesting people, to write about, tell me about what it is that the First World War in particular meant to them. And you may know the wonderful illustrator and writer Raymond Briggs. If you don't, you should. Anyway, I asked him because of the snowman and all the wonderful things that he's done. And he wrote this. Try to remember when you're listening to it that he's, he's even older than me. I'm 70 and I think Raymond must be 80 around there. So he's been alive a long, long time. Auntie was the name used by children for any old lady in the 1930s and 40s. A child would seldom use the lady's full name, Miss Smith or Mrs. Bennett, for example, unless they were an authority figure such as a schoolteacher. Nor would a child dream of using the lady's first name, Ethel or Marjorie, but Auntie Ethel and Auntie Marjorie was okay and more polite. It was odd because these ladies were not our real aunties. But then some of them were. I was evacuated to a stone cottage in Dorset with Auntie Flo and Auntie Betty. Flo was my real aunt, Betty was not. As for these ladies being old, it was many years before I realised that they were only middle-aged. They belong to that unlucky generation born around 1900. So they would have been about 18 in 1918. Just the age to be on the lookout for a boyfriend and hoping to get married. To a child, anyone over 40 seems old. But when you are 80, as I am now, 40 is peanuts. Boys of my generation, born about 1935, were called up for national service in the army or the air force aged 18. Some were sent out to fight in the Korean War, and many were killed there. Really, they were still schoolboys. Korean War? Ever heard of it? I was very lucky. I was given deferment from National Service for one year to complete my four-year art course. I became 18 in 1952, so finally went into the army in 1953, the very year the Korean War ended few just missed it. I was lucky with the year I was born. The aunties were very unlucky with theirs. And here's his poem that he wrote. Aunties. When I was a child, there were always lots of aunties. They were everywhere. Some were real aunties. Mum's umpteen sisters, Dad's umpteen sisters. There was no end of them. Auntie Flo, Auntie Betty, Auntie Edie, Auntie Marjorie, Auntie Bertie, Auntie Jessie. The list is endless. I won't go on except for Auntie Violet, my favourite auntie, killed on a bus in the Blitz. It seemed quite natural, 
didn't give it a thought. That was the way the world was. Lots of old ladies everywhere. They were called spinsters. Some were rather quaint and looked down upon. A few were slightly mad. Then one day, when I was grown up, it dawned on me. First World War. A million men were missing. Why hadn't I thought of it before? The men these women never met, never even had the chance to meet. All dead. These ladies were always kind, gentle and loving to me, not sour, bitter and resentful, as they had every right to be. A million missing men, a million aunties by Raymond Briggs. Hello, I'm Orly and I'm with Fernando. We're both from London and we're going to be asking Michael Morpurgo some questions. What message do you want to give to children by basing so many of your books on the war? I don't want to give a message to children. What I want is to tell a story to children and then I want the children to make of it what they would like to make of it. I'd like them to make up their own minds. But, there's no doubt about it, I have a particular take on war, an understanding of war, feeling about war, and that comes through in my stories. But I don't write my stories to make you believe something. I suppose if I'm honest, because I have been a teacher, and I'm a parent and I'm a grandfather, is that when you talk to children, or when you write a book, which you know children are going to read, what you would like is that it makes them think, because that's what books are all about. It's to make us think and to understand ourselves and the world about us better. So that's what I write for. I'm not in the message-passing business. You'd need a pigeon for that. How does writing about war help you cope with your feelings about it? It is, I think, maybe one of the main reasons I do write about war. I was born in 1943, so I grew up after the Second World War with the sights and sounds of what that war left behind both in terms of broken buildings and broken families and broken society and a lot of unhappiness. There was a lot of grief when I was growing up. A lot of people were missing. And my parents were very sad about that. And when you're young, as you know, Fernando, things matter. And I'm here to tell you, because you won't know this yet, that the things that matter to you when you're very little will matter to you all your life. You don't forget them. And sometimes they're quite disturbing and upsetting. And I think it's quite true that I do write a great deal about war because I'm still trying to work out why it is that we do it now, after all this time, after two world wars during the last century, why we still are making wars around the world. Um, it upsets me profoundly because I know what happens because of my own family losing an uncle when one member of your family is killed in a war. And what happens is this. Yes, that person's not there. I never knew this uncle. He was my uncle Peter, and he's just a photograph to me on a mantelpiece. I never met him. He died in 1941 in the RAF. He was killed. But what I did witness was the grief that went on all my mother's life. My mother was his sister, and all her life until she died, this was the big grief of her life. And grief doesn't die when people die. It lingers on and lingers on, and it can turn into other things. It can turn into anger. It can turn into vengeance. It's really the worst outcome of any war because 
to my way of thinking, war doesn't solve things. It simply postpones solutions which are anyway going to be arrived at in the end by people talking. There's this wonderful old soldier called Harry Patch, who was the last soldier of the First World War to die, aged over 100 and something. And he said, and he'd lived through that whole First World War, and he knew it firsthand, had seen all the terrible things we, we hear about and know about, but he'd seen it himself, lived through it. And he said right at the end of his life that at the end of the day, people are going to get round and a table and sort it out. So why do we have to go through this horror before they do? Are the characters from War Horse based on real people and animals? I suppose they're not based on people I knew, but the idea for the story came from people I knew and the place. I live in the middle of Devon. I live in this tiny little village and it's there I set um, the beginning of the story. This is where the horse, the foal, Joey, grows up on the farm on the farm that I live on. That's where the horse grew up. So in my mind's eye, that was the place. When it comes to the people, what I did is I met, by chance, an old man, we're talking 40 years ago, who was 80 then himself, a man called Wilf Ellis. And I discovered he'd been to the First World War as a young man, and it was he who told me his story for hours and hours and hours. And then I discovered there was another old man in the village who'd been there with horses, and I talked to him. So I did talk to the people who'd actually been there, but I did not use their characters as such in the book. Those were invented characters, in so much as any character is invented, because when an author, a writer, a storyteller makes a character, what she or he is always doing in a way is taking something from one person they know and something from some characteristic from another person and weaving them together to create a new character. So in that sense, all the characters you create are some kind of amalgam of someone that you've, you've known. Why did you decide to write War Horse from an animal's point of view instead of the humans? There have been many books written about war and the First World War from one side or the other. So, in the First World War, for instance, there are many, many books written from the German side, from the French side, from the British side, many plays. And so I thought, well, if you're going to write about this war, why are you writing about it? I wanted somehow to create a story which showed the universal suffering of war, that is, the suffering on all sides. Now, 10 million soldiers died in that war, and we do not know how many million civilians. It was in the millions, that's for sure. So I thought, well, if you're going to write a story, try and tell it from a neutral point of view somehow. And the horse, for me, was the perfect way of doing it, because I could have a horse, and I'd work this out, brought up in my farm in, in Devon uh, before the First World War, sold off to the army, trained as a cavalry horse, British cavalry horse, listening all the time to British voices, hearing everything from the British point of view, then going across to France and seeing the French countryside and being captured quite early on after a charge by Germans who then used the horse for pulling guns or pulling ambulance. And then the horse saw the war from the German point of view. And then Joey Winters on a French farm and sees it from the French civilian point of view. So I thought that might shine new lights on this war. That's what I was trying to do. So that's the reason I wrote it in a horse's voice. It was potentially a really silly thing to do because as you know perfectly well, Fernando, horses don't talk and they certainly don't sit down and write books very often. However, one horse before me had done it and, and that was Black Beauty. And the problem is it's almost the only really famous book written by a horse. But I took the risk. I don't know if it worked. Your books have had a huge impact on how many people, um, myself included, have initially learnt about World War I. But 
how do you think children should first be introduced and at what age to the war? I don't think it's about age because you can't judge a child by his or her age. It's when children are very, very young and you're reading them and telling them stories, it is really important that they are not upset by stories. I don't mind them being sad, providing they arrive at hope and joy at the end. That's very, very important. However, there does come a time when these children are beginning to be aware of this, this war thing. It happens on their television in the corner and they get to hear about it. Then it's important they begin to read books which touch on the subject so that they begin to, to comprehend what it is. I think it's important that even then you don't traumatize them and even then you give hope. And even in the direst of stories, for instance in War Horse, which goes to a very painful place most of the book, at the end boy and horse find each other. In the end there is a reunion in no man's land between a German soldier and a British soldier. But you have not to patronize them. You haven't to talk to children as if they don't know anything and as if somehow you endlessly have to instruct them about it. Because actually these days they do know. They've picked up things all the time. And um, I think it's very important not to avoid subjects. Do you think it's not a good idea for them not to read Anne Frank's story? No, it's a good thing for them to read Anne Frank's story at the right time. And I've written myself about the Holocaust. And it's very, very important thing to do because we have to know how wicked and evil people can be but also how strong people can be to survive. And finally your new anthology is being described as timeless but do you think in 50 or 100 years people will still be writing about or talking about World War One? Oh yes. It is in a way, in a strange sort of way, the most um, iconic of, of, of all wars. It was the first time really that massed armies, not professional armies, massed armies of the people from these streets all around here in King's Cross. There were people who went to the recruiting office and put on these uniforms. These weren't soldiers. They were lads, you know. And they came from farms and they came from offices. And they got together with chums. You had whole football clubs that, yeah, let's go and join up. And they joined up. They weren't soldiers at all. But they put on uniforms and they were put in this extraordinary situation. And then what they didn't realise, and actually the generals didn't realise, no one realised at all, is that we had invented weapons of war which were so overwhelmingly powerful and destructive that having lots of soldiers just made no difference. They were just wiped out, whether it was machine guns or it was wire or there was the shelling. It was just overwhelming. So it was human flesh and horse flesh, if you like, against this extraordinary array of new armaments which had been used massively for the first time. It is an extraordinary moment in history when history turned itself upside down. And that's critical because if there had not been a First World War, you have to think about this now, if, for instance, the Christmas truce in 1914 had worked and all the soldiers had climbed out of their trenches and said, excuse me, that's enough, I'm not doing this anymore, there would very likely have been no Russian Revolution. The agony went on, and the, so the First World War turned history up on its head in the most extraordinary way. I always think that that Christmas truce, if only, if only, it had just spread along and the generals hadn't been able to do anything about it at all and they'd gone on singing their carols and they'd gone on shaking hands and throwing down their weapons and it could have happened. Do you know, I think if there'd been Facebook, it might have happened. 
For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com/audio.